what I wanted to talk about this morning was fasting. Because fasting is strange. Tell you a story. Who here ate too much at Christmas? Confession has come to the church. Fantastic. All right. Um, There are a few different documentaries which I had found myself watching recently all about health. And one of them was a guy with a very peculiar lisp who talked about this thing of fasting as part of your daily practice and the way it changes your body chemistry. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give this a go. And this was around about Christmas time, not the world's best time to try and think, I'm going to start my fasting regime now. So, But sort of kicked off in a haphazard way. And I found myself, because of this thing that I'd introduced at fasting, something really strange and really unexpected happening. When I came to pray, or when I came to sit down and just to talk to God about something, there was a clarity in my thinking, and this is miraculous, there was a clarity in my thinking that I hadn't got from coffee. Because when I need to think clearly, and you might be different, I would go and I would have a coffee. But I found that there was this clarity. And when, when I sat, my mind was clear and something, I don't know physiologically what was going on. But I found that at this particular point in time, this thing happened to help. It, it worked. It did something. And there was clarity there and I was able to speak to God. And I was able to hear him more clearly. And so this choice to fast completely changed and it became easier than what it was. Now, I say this because fasting, if you've grown up in Christianity, you, like me, may have a long list of shoulds, things that we should do as Christians. And for me, fasting was on my should list. I should read my Bible for at least two hours a day. I should be praying for at least three or four hours a day. This is what the holy rollers do, isn't it? You know, I, I should be fasting three days a week. I should be you know, giving away 35% of my income. I should, 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 all my big list of shoulds. And fasting had been a should. And now all of a sudden, this thing called fasting became easy because fasting was not the goal. Now, fasting was a means to the goal. And the goal was intimacy with God. I want to hear his voice more clearly. I want to have a clearer head when I come to him to pray, to, to chew things over. So fasting is now not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And it surprised me. It wasn't a thing on its own. It does not work except as a means to fulfill the desire to draw near. I had tried fasting before. Have you ever tried fasting? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, actually. But perhaps you have tried fasting before and it has not worked for you. And so I found this very confusing. There were stories which I'd heard when I was a young Christian, about these priests um, who would go on pilgrimages overseas. And these guys were the ones who were so utterly convicted of their own sinfulness and they tried to exercise such piety that in order to purify themselves somehow spiritually, they would whip and beat their own bodies, taking quite literally Paul's exhortation, I beat my body because of Christ. And these guys would literally um, smash glass all up and down steps, and then they would drag themselves up and down these, these rows of steps in order to punish themselves because they wanted to purify their own motives. And this was this picture I had in my head and go, okay, I can't even fast. But fasting was this external rule that I had tried to apply to myself. 
that when I came to fasting, fasting in my mind had been made a law that I wasn't keeping. And so I felt guilty for not fasting. And whatever this measure was about finances, I felt guilty for not giving enough of my finances, or I felt guilty for not giving enough of my time, or I felt guilty because, Lord, I've never even tried crawling through broken glass before. And it's really easy to keep piling this list of shoulds upon our Christianity. I'm like, Lord, is there a particular passage of Scripture that you can take me to, that you can illuminate in my mind to help me understand this? Because this is, this is strange. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a Bible, please open it. And this is a passage worth highlighting. I don't know if you highlight your Bible. A famous preacher by the name of Bob Mumford once said, if your Bible's too good to highlight, throw it away and get one you can highlight. Which is an interesting approach. If you have a pew Bible, don't highlight that. Actually, no, highlight that. If you have a pew Bible, this is worth highlighting in a pew Bible too. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is in the middle of all things of speaking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about these amazing manifestations of the Spirit of God that human beings operate in. And in the middle of it, he comes to this. And Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. There was a lady I've heard share the story looking at this passage of Scripture where she said, Growing up, we loved classical music. And she grew up in India. And then she said, I was, I was across in America one time and they were giving away tickets to this huge concerto on the radio. So I called up and I won the tickets and we went and we sat and we listened for an hour and a half, two hours to this beautiful, amazing classical music. And how many times did we hear the gong? Once. Because that's all anyone could stand. If I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy... And can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, or your translation might say to the flames, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Fascinating because if we take any one of these verses and the thing that's in it, you know, if we met someone who could speak both in the tongues of men and of angels, imagine if you met someone and spontaneously they could just speak to in any language on earth, we would go, oh my goodness, something of God is at work here. Wow! Or if someone had the gift of prophecy and could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if someone was like the prophet Daniel, someone who could listen to a dream and interpret it specifically, clearly, the way that, that God had intended for that dream to happen. Or if someone was like Joseph who interpreted dreams. If I have a faith that can move mountains, if you were like Elijah and could call down fire from heaven or could tell the rain to stop up. We would be impressed with these things. I would be impressed with these things. Verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, if I am like Mother Teresa, if I subject myself to a life of poverty, if I give away everything that I have, if I literally own nothing but have not love, I gain nothing. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I am nothing I gain nothing. Now, I had a go at this. This is from the book of Bob. This is not scripture. If I attend church without fail every Sunday and do all of the dishes after morning tea, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I read my Bible an hour a day, fast three days a week and pray for two hours daily, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give 30% of my income away and open my house to the needy but do not have love, I gain nothing. What is on your should list? It is possible for our Christianity to be anchored to shoulds and not to love. That's the point this morning. I grew up in a Christian household. My dad was a pastor. There was really not much escape for me. My brother tried. It didn't work. But if you, like me, grew up in a Christian household from a young age, I remember sitting on the front row of church and looking around. I'm like, every other kid in this church is playing with toys. And dad's like, no, you're the pastor, son. You will not play with toys in church. And it was drummed into me, behavior, behavior, behavior. You will do this. You shall not do this. You do not speak to the little old ladies in church that way. You, at, at five years of old, no, you're not allowed to receive the offering. You know, at all of these different things about the way you dress, the way you speak. In our church, it was the way you held your hands. Most often you held your hands like this when you sang. You didn't hold your hands like this, that's a bit much. But you're allowed to do that halfway between, that's okay. And this is all right. You're spot on. The fineries of our behavior... If there were three services on a Sunday, you had to turn up to at least two. If you turn up to three, then you're kicking a goal. Behavior, behavior, behavior. And so I grew up and the Christianity that I knew, and maybe this is your story too, was culture. I grew up embedded in Christian culture, the do's and the don'ts and the shoulds of Christian culture. And fasting was a should. But at some point, at some point, if I don't move from my understanding of Christianity being keeping a list of rules or expectations, if I don't move across so that my Christianity is anchored to the person of Jesus Christ himself, then what have I got? I've got a long list of shoulds which I'm keeping, but if that love, if that core is not in place, if something of the love of God is not attached to the love of me, then all I have left is shoulds. And I would argue I have not moved from death to life, even though it looks like it. Because if you keep all the trappings of Christianity, but at, at the core, you are not attached to Jesus himself, then we have a severe problem. So here we have a litmus test. When you think about coming to church, when it's 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning and you go, oh, church today. What is it that that gets you out of bed and dressed and gets the kids sorted or, or any of those sorts of things? Is it I have to put on my Christian face or I have to turn up or I have to have my backside on a pew or is it a should or is it, you know, Jesus I'm hanging out for you to do something this morning. I want to be with your people because you're going to do something. I want to be near to people who love you. Even though I may not have the energy to sing loud and just adore you this morning, I'm going to stand near someone who does. What is it? Is it a should? When you think about tithes and offerings, when you think about, okay, I am going to take out of my hard-earned contribution and I'm going to give it to local mission or overseas mission or I'm going to give it so that we can put Christmas hampers together. Any of these things, is it a case of, well, I'm doing this because I should? Or is it because, Lord, 
I'm going to say thank you. I mean, what, what is it behind any of these things that we do? Are we doing them in love? See, it's possible to fast and not love. We can understand that. It is possible for you to go, you know what, I'm not eating today. And then to not eat for a day. Congratulations, you have now ticked the box of fasting. But where's the love? In what way does fasting plug into the love that exists between you and God? Now, at this point, here's something that's very easy for us to do. It is easy for you guys to sit there, and I did this when I was sitting down looking through and going, okay, cool, so I should love God more. Thanks, Bob. I'll put that in my should list. I feel like I don't love him enough. I'll just add that to my long list of shoulds. Oh, I should love him. That one's a bit foggy. We'll put that down the list. It's not about a should. It's actually about do you. It's not about what you should do. It's about what you actually do, where you actually are. If we peel back all of the shoulds, imagine that we took away attendance at a Sunday service, attendance at a Bible study, meeting for prayer meetings, if, if your Bible was confiscated off you, if you couldn't meet with other Christians, if you were locked up or imprisoned or any of these other things that happened to Christians around the world, if we peel back all the shoulds so now you have nothing left except your relationship with God right at the core, right at the crux, right at the very center of who you are, here's this question, do you? Do you? Do you love him? Is there a sense that at the core of your being, something about his passion and love, his desire for you has connected? And at the core of your being is a desire for him and a passion for him. This, this longing, this aching for intimacy with him. And it's not about should. Please don't hear should this morning. Your should list is long enough. It's like mine. But the question is, do you? Do you actually love him? Is love at the core of everything? And no matter how small it is, we're not going to get anywhere unless we're honest about that. So maybe this is your conversation. Maybe this is where your head goes. You go, you know what? Actually, if I peel back all the shoulds, I don't want to be here. And Lord, if I am honest with you, I actually feel nothing. I would like to love you, but I don't. That is brilliant. That is absolutely, utterly brilliant because it means you have actually been honest with God. And it means you have actually peeled the layers back and you know where you are at. And however small that scrap of passion is in you, however small that is, if you, if you say to him, look, I want to love you even though I don't. I feel nothing. I want to feel something. I wish I was passionate about you, but I'm not. Then at least now you know what to ask for. And now it's not about going, okay, I'm not passionate about God. I don't have this love for God. I'm not on fire for God. Okay, I'm going to go back to my should list. No, 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 no. Please, no. Don't go back to the should list. God has something much bigger and much better and much more wonderful as a solution to this. Let me put a caveat in here at one point. If you realize that you have a hunger for God and you actually desire to be intimate with him, 
if you ache, if you long to go, I just want your presence. I want to be where you are. I want to sense that you are near me. At that that point, if the enemy is going to send a wolf, that's when the wolf will come. Because someone else, if you're hungry for God, if he has led you to himself, someone else can stand in front and go, oh, I can see that you're really longing for, for something. I can fill that void for you. And sometimes our longing for God gets hijacked by someone or by something. Or sometimes we go, Lord, I just so much long for your presence that we end up fixating maybe on a pastor that we see on TV. Maybe on the author of a book that we read. Oh, if I could only get near them. It's almost like stalking. We go, oh, if I could only get close enough to that person, that person will take me to Jesus. No, 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 no. You keep focusing on he himself and you watch what he does. God has only ever given one solution to people who are passionate to serve him, to seek him, to desire him. He has only ever... Only ever given one solution, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's all my introduction. There you go. Unrequited love. Where we go, Lord, I want to be near you. I want your presence. We're going to have a look at what Jesus says about that this morning. Well, we're going to start here in Isaiah 63. It says this, starting at verse 9. Talking about God's judgment against Israel. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. Speaking about God here and Israel. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? Who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? Who led them through the depths like a horse in open country? They did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Before Jesus turns up, there is this expectation, an Old Testament expectation, that when God is near, he is near by his spirit. And this desire, we'll we'll see it here in some of the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel, verse 26, uh, chapter 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees And be careful to keep my laws. There is an expectation when God comes near, he comes near by his spirit. It was the spirit who rested upon the tabernacle. It was the spirit who was the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It was the spirit who was the presence of God in the temple. It is an Old Testament picture. John 16, Jesus talking. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Jesus speaking to the disciples, unless I go away, the parakletos, comforter, consoler, intercessor, advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Pause there for a sec. 
Jesus is saying to the disciples, to these people who had travelled with him and seen this miraculous stuff happen for three years, and Jesus says, it is in your best interest that I'm not here because if I go, I'm going to send the advocate. Would you rather have Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Fascinating question. Because Jesus says it is better for you to have the Holy Spirit than for you to have Jesus himself. All of your desire for intimacy with God, all of your passion to know him, to understand him, to draw near to him, to be consumed and transformed by him. All of that, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is is the person for the job. The Holy Spirit is the one that you want. Jesus himself says that. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit has work to do. He is God's emissary, and he doesn't just turn up for the first time in the New Testament. We have this expectation from the Old Testament, if God is going to draw near, if he's actually going to show up, this is how he shows up. This is his choice. This is his MO, his modus operandi, the way he does things. John 16, verse 12. Jesus says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Who is it that guides us into all the truth? Who is it that guides us into all the truth? It is the Spirit of God. He will not speak on his own. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak out of turn. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. You see, if you end up, if you end up having a relationship which is the proper one that God wants you to have with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to point you back where? to glorifying Jesus. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Anything that the Holy Spirit wants to share is something that Jesus has already given him to share anyway. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So what is it that Jesus has received from the Father? Have a look, verse 15. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And if the Spirit is going to give you what the Spirit receives from Jesus, what is the Spirit going to give you? Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. If you want all of the Father, where is your go-to point? The Spirit. The Spirit has a bad reputation in conservative Baptist churches in Australia. I grew up seeing some of the excesses of the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism. I have seen the worst of the worst that people have done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And it is not cause enough for us to abandon Scripture when Scripture says he is the go-to point. If you want intimacy with God, The avenue that he has provided is a relationship with his spirit. 
John 14, 16 says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Same word, parakletos, to help you and be with you forever. The, the word that Jesus uses there for another means another of the same kind. Throughout Scripture, Jesus can continually defers to the Holy Spirit. He says, I need to go. You want, this, you want this guy to come. It is better for me to go and for you to have the Holy Spirit. Jesus here puts the Holy Spirit on the same tier as himself, another advocate, another of the same kind, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. John fifteen twenty six. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. If you want to learn about Jesus, who is it that testifies about Jesus? The spirit of God testifies about Jesus. This is one of his primary functions. Is that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of someone, what happens is their relationship with who Jesus is changes. Because the Holy Spirit is the one by whom it gets changed. Ephesians 4.30, this is Paul speaking. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is Old Testament language. I think it first turns up in either Isaiah or Ezekiel, this idea of grieving the Spirit of God. Paul is actually making a reference to the Old Testament here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Your salvation... You did not get branded on a part of your body. Someone didn't hand you a card and say, cool, you're now carded. You were sealed with a person. You were sealed with the third person of the Trinity. You were sealed with the one that Jesus advocates as another of the same kind. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit has access to everything that Jesus has, and if Jesus has access to everything that the Father has, then part of you being sealed with the Holy Spirit is you now have access. Hebrews 9.14 says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus did not offer himself to the Father except the Holy Spirit was involved in that process. Can you see that there in Hebrews? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God? See, salvation is not just something that happens between the Father and the Son. Just as creation is not something that happens between the Father and the Son, the recreation through the redemption of Christ doesn't happen through the Father and the Son. John, John's gospel, right at the start, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And everything that came into existence came into existence through the word. And we go, cool. When we look back at Genesis, is it Jesus hovering over the waters? It's the spirit hovering over the waters. The spirit and the son are both involved in creation. And here we have the spirit and the son both involved in your redemption. Often we can think the Holy Spirit is like a Queensland room extension. To go, cool, well, I already have my salvation. Oh, cool, the, the Holy Spirit can do stuff as well. Yeah, 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 sure, cool. Tack that on the end. Romans 8, 15 and 16. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. 
Who was it that brought about your adoption to sonship? The Spirit brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by who? By the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Abba is a translation, really, of the word Daddy. It's an intimate term between a child and a father. Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The longing that you actually have for God already, to be near to him, to be intimate with him, to seek him, to to be close to him, to embrace him, that is the Holy Spirit at work. Where are we going with all of this? God's answer for our desire to be intimate with him is still the same. It's a Holy Spirit. That's what it was for Israel. And that's what it is for you and me. If you desire to be intimate with God, it is not about a list of shoulds. He does not give you more shoulds. He gives you himself. When God himself shows up in all his glory, it is equally Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit decided that what you need most right now is the Holy Spirit. All of your hunger, all of your passion, all of your desire to be near to God is supposed to be fulfilled by your relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Diet Coke version of God's presence. You didn't get the Holy Spirit because they ran out of good ones. The Holy Spirit is what Israel hungered for. He is what they were hoping for, what they were looking for. He is who Jesus deferred to. And both the Father and the Spirit testified to Jesus at his baptism. Both the Father and the Spirit were involved in your adoption. Both Jesus and the Spirit are the reason that you can speak to the Father. If your passion for intimacy with God has not been cultivated to center around the Holy Spirit. It is not biblical. Let me, let me say that again. If your passion for intimacy with God has not been cultivated to center around the Holy Spirit, it is not biblical because it's not the way Jesus wanted it. Not once in Scripture do we find the disciples complaining that they only have the Holy Spirit now and not Jesus himself. If you want God, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has already moved in and set up shop. And if we stand here and we go, but nothing happened, nothing's going on. There's there's no sense of intimacy. Okay, we can work on that. But it's not about shoulds. Intimacy with God is not about a list of things that we will magically, mystically achieve one day if we become holy enough. Jesus said it would be better for you to have the Holy Spirit than for you to have him. If you or I would rather have Jesus than the Holy Spirit, then something needs to change. If you or I would rather have Jesus than the Holy Spirit, then something needs to change. Our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is our understanding of the intimacy that God wants to have with us needs to change. To seek God's presence is to seek the Spirit of God. Is this you this morning? Is there a hunger in your heart for God that you feel is unrequited? 
that somehow you love him, but you don't feel like you're getting loved back, that you desire him and you just want to be near to him, but something's not happening, something's not plugged in. The answer is always the same. The answer is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that anyone who asks for the Spirit of God, God doesn't hold back. How much more will he give the Spirit to those who ask? We don't seek the Holy Spirit because of the cool things he might do, because of the stuff that he might put on a show for us with, because of the strange and wild and hairy things that might happen one day. We seek to know God for who he is, to love him, to seek his face, not his hand, not his pocket, if that makes sense. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you desire intimacy with us. We know that you have moved heaven and earth that you have done so much in order to seek intimacy with us, to dwell in us, to abide with us. As Jesus prayed that you would be in us and us in you. Father, would you please help us to get beyond our shoulds? Would you please help us to focus on you, to seek you and your presence? to worship you wholeheartedly, to glorify you wholeheartedly, to not be satisfied with just ticking the boxes, but to hunger for you. Lord Jesus, I ask that nothing would stand in the way of us hungering after you. Anything that we have been satisfied with that is not you, Lord, would you convict us whatever we have given our hearts to that is not you, Lord, would you please retrieve them for us? Would you please restore to us that passion, that fervency to seek you, to be changed by you, to to have your values, to have your life? Lord Jesus, would you please transform us? Would you make us into your people, Lord? Would you please free us from these fictitious things that we have limited ourselves by? To seek you as you desire to have us seek you. Not for our glory, we pray, but for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.